Welcome to Voices of Experience. Here's your host, Kate Delaney. Hello, Kate Delaney back with your April Voices of Experience. Many of you have done plenty of keynoting in what is one of the top convention cities in the country, Las Vegas. I was thinking about this the last time I trekked through the Venetian lobby and through the casino floor to get to my room. I heard somebody shriek when they heard the sound of the slot machine going crazy. Humor me for a second. Visualize that money flowing into your hands, not from a game of chance, but through spinoffs after you've left the stage, whether it's products, more keynotes, or a deeper dive with a company. Some of you are masters at it, others not so much. But this month, I bet everyone will grab some new techniques that will help you grow your business. Enjoy. Excited to catch up with Lois Kramer, Book More Business. What a brilliant name for a business, right? Especially when she's in the business of doing that, helping us uh, speakers. And so many of us, I think, I'm going to speak for myself, struggle with the, I think it's the follow-up. You get off the stage, you've crushed it, you've creamed it, you know that. There's an avalanche of people that rush up to you. You do have offerings, but suddenly it becomes chaotic. People tell you they want to book you or they want to get one of your programs and all of a sudden, you know, they're out the door, they grab a card and then you've lost them. Lois, help us, please. What do we do? What a common dilemma you just related, Kate. This is something that we all hear. You know, you go, you're hired, you do a great job. As you said, people are swarming you with questions. They're interested. And then you go back to your office and nothing happens. I think the reason nothing happens is because we are not taking control of the situation. We want people to come to us. And what we have to do is take control of every contact. And to me, Kate, it's all about leveraging. I think too many times we go out and we do a great job, deliver a great program, it's well received, and then we go back and say, wow, that was great, I'd love to do that again. I hope somebody calls me. And the phone doesn't ring. And I think that um, the magic is in the follow-up, as you said. It's in the follow-up, and something that I've been talking about lately to chapters and writing about, as a matter of fact, something that I call aftercare, which is what you're going to do after the program with a client. Ooh, I like that aftercare. That's a great buzzword. What are some of the things that we can do after the training, the workshop, speaking, any of that? Well, I believe that it should all start very naturally with a follow-up thank you call. And that would be just us calling and saying, uh, Joe, I just wanted to call and say thanks again for bringing me in. I enjoyed my program. I wanted to make sure the feedback continued to be as positive as was what I heard. I would love to use some of that feedback as a testimonial. And one thing, Kate, I think that we don't ask, anytime you work for a private business or a corporation, ask what associations do you belong to? Because that's the way to get your foot in the door with associations, to have your name walked in Mm. by a member of the association. And lots of corporations 
are members of many, many associations that you may be a fit for. So that's a good question to ask. But to roll into the aftercare, I think a great way to set it up is just to say, you know, I loved speaking with your group and using one of my phrases that pays, do you think it would make sense at this point to make sure the ideas and the techniques that I discussed in my program are actually implemented in your business? Because if that sounds like something that would be a positive to you, I'd love to work with you on that. So that's how we introduce the idea of aftercare. And then it's a matter of what do you have to offer? Are you a consultant in your area of expertise? I used to speak on sales to uh, corporate sales teams. So I would follow up and I would say, do you think it would make sense for me to work with your sales managers in a small group to make sure that my techniques and tactics are actually applied by your sales team? And that's a hard thing, Kate, for them to say, no, that makes no sense. We spent thousands of dollars to bring you in, but to implement it, no, we don't have any interest. <laughs> and oh, that's we want good. that to be a hard no. And so then, you know, you can do a number of things. You can consult. I did small group consulting. Um, uh, now we don't have Google Hangout, but you can do it on Zoom. You can do it on a number of programs, Skype. You can even record it for team members who can't be there when you call. You can do one-on-one -on -one consulting if your expertise is leadership uh, to implement some of the leadership ideas. You can even do things like teleseminars, follow-up articles, maybe even follow-up training to larger groups within the group that you just spoke to. And all of this requires taking that next step with the client. And How? then, you know, I found that when I did my sales programs, sometimes I looked at my speech almost as a paid showcase. Mm. And sometimes I made more on the back end consulting than I did on the speech. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. How much time? What's the, the optimum amount of time? You know how that is. Oh, I'm traveling. Oh, a week goes by. Two weeks go by. you got to do that right away, don't you? Exactly. Thank you for mentioning that because I think the magic is in following up within 48 hours. Within 48 hours of your platform time, while they're still kind of uh, in the glow and everybody's remembering what a great job you did, this is when you really want to ask them, do you want to implement this instead of just hearing about it? I can help you implement it. And then, as I said, a number of ways that you can change your role from speaker to actual resource. And that's when the money really starts coming in to me. So I think the magic, it's all about leveraging that engagement through good follow-up and offering an aftercare, depending upon what your talent is, what you can offer, and then completing the whole picture by speaking about it, making sure they're applying your ideas, and seeing them work. And when they work, they're going to want more of you. 
Yeah, and Lois, it really is important these days because you could be killing it as a keynote speaker, but you said it. You were really making more money. It was like it was a showcase for you, and, and I have a feeling, and I said that at the top, I'll raise my hand. I know that I've let a lot of dollars go out the door. And, and what about when people come up to you and they were in the audience? Let's say you had you weren't just in a corporation, which is great, or, or just one company, but you were speaking to a multitude of people and then you get that same rush and they're putting business cards you were terrific gosh i would love to talk you to you about coming to my company but you can't talk to them there and other people are throwing down cards and it gets really confusing yes it can get really confusing and i think so i think what you need to do is try and take control of that situation as much as you can you know i always used to say i'm happy to give you a business card or I'm happy for you to give me a business card, but I want us both to do the exchange because I know I'll follow up with you. You may not, but I will if I take charge of it. And now we have ways to engage and get that audience contact information. Actually, better ways, Kate, than just the old business card by having them text with programs like Jeff Mason's Kiwi Live. Mm-hmm. Have them text a keyword and get a handout or a blog post, and they're rolled right into your database, and you are going to take control of that contact. And I think that, again, timing is everything. And I know for solopreneurs, it's hard to do everything on your own, but making sure that you are really leveraging in a timely way, I think is the magic to booking more business after one initial speech. Well, I love that. The And I know a lot of people do do that. For instance, as you said, Kiwi Live or being able to send something back, the blog, the white paper, the yeah. whatever. So you've got that first touch immediately. And that's just a little strategizing, having it ready ahead of time, of course. And we have those things. And if you have them ready, then it's easy to, to let that drip out. It is. And it even it can buy you more time if you're on the road and you're a little bit busy. Making sure that they are hearing from you in a timely manner can buy you a little bit of time. So I am still a stickler for following up um, as quickly as you can, because that's when they're going to remember what a great job you did, what a great resource you are, and they're going to think of how many ways can we use this person. Yeah. Great, great advice. Lois Kramer, Book More Business, thank you so much. Thank you, Kate. Fun being with you today. Very pleased to be joined by business growth expert Meredith Elliott Powell. She's got a book out called Own It, Redefining Responsibility, Stories of Power, Freedom, and Purpose. Who doesn't want power, freedom, and purpose? That's brilliant. But what I'm intrigued by is those two words, own it. Meredith, first of all, thanks so much for hanging with us. And what does own it mean? Well, thank you um, for having me. And own it is exactly the path all you need to do if you want to find that path to power, freedom, and purpose. What I want people to understand from reading the book and why I wrote the book is what I hear is leaders saying, well, just if my employees would do more, and employees saying, what if my leaders would do more, speakers saying, just if I could get another gig. We're always looking for somebody else to fix the 
the problem to create our path or find a strategy. What the book is about, you got everything you need. If you focus it in the right place, you take charge of your life and you own it. Yeah, something I like to say, that's brilliant. Something I like to say is, what are you not leveraging? And that goes along with what you're saying in a way where people don't, they're, they're looking to somebody else to do it. So whether it's getting another speaking gig, whether it's getting more business in a different way, I think sometimes people forget they don't look around. They, they're in these silos, but they want to throw rocks at the other silos. And I think that's a bigger problem now more than ever. I know you worked in corporate America and so did I, but I think it's worse. What do you think? I think it's way worse. You know, I learned in yoga class of all places, whatever we focus on in life expands. And when you really think about it, it's true. You get only a finite amount of energy. And what I see, the difference between successful people and people that, let's just say, aren't successful or seem to always have an obstacle, it's where they put their time, energy, and their resources. What do you choose to focus on. In your terms, you know, what do you choose to leverage? When you get turned down by a first speaking gig, what do you do with that information? What do you do with that energy? So it really comes down to focus, resilience, and stamina. And all of those, what I think is amazing, are within your control. Yeah, boy, that's true. I love that focus, resilience, and stamina. And so if you focus more, and and like you said, in a speaking situation, if you don't get the gig, figure out why you didn't, right? Yeah, I mean, you can spend a lot of time whining and complaining and saying it's unfair. And believe me, that's a lot of fun. (laughs) But the problem with being a victim is always being the victim is that's all you're ever going to get. It's all you're ever going to be. Rather than using it as an opportunity to figure out why, to learn from it, and go back to the drawing board, pick yourself back up and go again, you can look at successful people. I mean, people that we think are rock stars. And when they get in there and share their stories, it is full a failure. I am a big believer that, you know, that success really comes down to your ability. Can you get back up more times than anybody else? And are you humble enough to learn, redirect, and refocus your energies? What happens if we don't own it? What happens if we continue down this path, whether as speakers, trainers, uh, other people just in life in general, corporate America, what happens if we don't start to realize that? Well, I think if we don't start to realize it, there's always going to be a spread between people who succeed, whatever your definition of success. So I want to put that out there. It's whatever your definition of success is. But if you don't own it, if you don't take ownership and realize that you're 100% in charge of your success, your happiness, and how far you get in life, you are never going to succeed. You're always going to struggle. You're always going to be unhappy. And you're you're going to be a victim. It's the end of your story. It's the last chapter. It's all you're ever going to be. All right. So we springboard from that into talking about business growth. When you, let's start with speaking. So when you do a speaking gig and you hit a home run and everybody comes up and high fives you, takes a selfie, tells you you're great. Maybe they buy some books because you're selling some books or other products in the back of the room. How do you get spinoff? People talk about spinoff, but I don't know that I've heard really honestly a a successful way that someone's constantly nailing that. What do you do to get more spinoff? You know, I learned a long time ago, it was one of the very first chapter meetings I went to, even think of before I was a professional member, and I heard Ruby speak. She brought it up 
doesn't even remember this, but boy, she had an impact on me. And she taught us in that session to plant your spinoff within your keynote. So let's say that I go in and I'm speaking about employee engagement or I'm speaking about leadership to work into my talk that I also speak about sales or that I'm a coach or that I'm a certified strategist to really put those pieces in there. I cannot tell you how much business that has brought me. I did that yesterday in Phoenix. I worked in a piece on the sales talk that I do. I was there talking about employee engagement, and they spoke to me right afterwards about they were interested and wanted to know about my sales strategy. So I think that's really number one. Start to plant the other things that you can do when you're talking to the meeting planner within your keynote. And then I, you know, the second thing is you got to realize follow-ups up to you. I mean, people come up and they go, oh, my God, you're amazing. We love you. We want you for your, our next speaking gig. Do not go home and expect them to call you because when they left your keynote, they got they got home, their kid got a D on his exam, mother fell and broke their hip, and everything went crazy. <laughs> you've got to stay in the game, and you've got to have a strategy to stay visible for those people. So I always say that the sale starts at the end of the keynote. Boy, I think that's really, really true. And I think there, that there could be also a timeline for that. Things happen. Sometimes you can't, maybe you have back-to-back uh, gigs or someplace else that you you're rushing off to, but you can't let it linger for too long, can you? No, no, no. In fact, I always say you've got to have a strategy for how you stay in touch. I mean, I've got an eight to a 10 point system of how I'm going to stay in touch with people. So, you know, there's that natural first, great, you know, so glad you're interested in me speaking, you know, what other information, how can I learn more about you? If they don't respond to that, you've got to have other ways to stay visible with them. And that's invite them to a webinar, uh, send them some type of piece of information. Always, always connect with people on LinkedIn. I can't tell you how many, um, how much residual business I've gotten from that. The other is that always recommend another speaker because you recommend another speaker. This happened to me for a group of financial advisors. I recommended uh, another speaker. She did the job and she planted the seed for me to go back in and do their next conference. And we tossed it back and forth, I don't know, maybe about four times. So I think there can be strategy in that as well. Yeah, and it's interesting. You say you have this, what, eight to 10 point system. Does it include like a, I like the webinar idea, white paper, what what else can you, because sometimes it doesn't work. So you said you write a great note and they say, oh, it was terrific. I'd love to, to bring you in and let's talk about it. And then as you say, they get super, super busy. So you got to figure out, I think you have to sit down with the calendar. I'm sure you do this. And you think about how many weeks, okay, I reached out two weeks ago. Now I need to reach out again in another two weeks or another 10 days. Do you do that? Oh, yes. I'm ridiculously type A um, personality. So if you run into me at an NSA meeting, certainly come up. I'm happy to share exactly what I do with you. Yeah, but it's um, it's anal. It's straight on point. It's ridiculously disciplined. But it's, um, it is 8 to 16 um, steps, and I have them written down, and I have them calendared. And I customize it a bit, but it's exactly what you said. It's, I have a webinar uh, that I invite them to. I always connect with them on um, LinkedIn. I send them something 
relevant to the last thing that we discussed. I comment or send a note about a conference that they've got coming up, and the list goes on from there. But I go ahead and I plan it. You know, if, if people don't take anything else this you know time that we're talking, get off this phone, I mean, get off this interview and plan a follow-up strategy. Just when you do a speaking gig and 20 people come up and go, oh my God, you're amazing, I've got to have you, have, be ready to go with 10 to 12 ways you're going to stay in touch with them so that you stay visible without being annoying because that's the trick. You've got to stay mm-hmm. visible without being annoying. If you call them every couple of months and say, I'm ready, are you ready? Guess what? You're annoying. They don't right. want to do business with you and you don't want to do business with them. Right. Yeah. So it's not about just pounding the phone. It's about some other strategies yeah. for sure. It's about building relationships is yeah. what it's about. Yeah, That's it is. It is relationships. Absolutely. Meredith Elliott Powell, again, own it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Time for the monthly oops moment when speakers reveal, well, when things didn't go quite as planned. Oops. My name is Karen Cortell Reisman, and my biggest oops moment was when I stood up to give a speech and my skirt did not. Can anybody identify with a tight waistband? That morning, the button and the buttonhole were an inch apart. East was not meeting West. Maybe you can identify with this, but I shoved it together, got to the venue, The person gave a pretty good introduction, but during that introduction, I sneezed. You know what happened next. I didn't know what happened, but that button was history. I stood up to give this speech, and everybody began to laugh and point down at my feet. And I like being funny, but I really hadn't said anything yet. And I look down, and I see that my pleated, plaid, gray, and red skirt was hovering over my black pumps. This is Rick Metzger, and my biggest oops moment was um, in 2013 after having a motorcycle accident and then got back on the road and started speaking. I was walking with uh, um, some pins in my foot and and a a walking cast and walked up on stage in front of a group of of teachers and administrators at a school district and had asked to have a stool put up on stage to talk and shared with them that for those of them that had seen me speak before and knew that I was an extremely energetic speaker and would be all over the stage due to the circumstances that that, uh, I had dealt with and and what the surgeon had told me, that I was not going to be nearly as highly as energetic. And I said, so I I hope that all of you will understand that my proctologist told me that I had to stay off of my feet. And rather than saying podiatrist, it was proctologist. Well, everybody automatically busted into laughter, and I had no clue why until after I come off stage. And the lady who had hired me said, do you understand why everybody was laughing and I said no and she said because when you said proctologist understanding that if they were going to operate on your foot from that far up he was obviously a lot better surgeon than most people ever would have would have had in their life so it's one of those Freudian slips that uh, but it's and I still get razzed about it to this day and that's been almost three years ago so this is Hillary Blair with one of many oopses my voiceover career I was recording for a mall Typical ad with a list of clothing lines. Reading along, it said, bump, 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 and then boo-foo. Recorded it, went home. In the middle of the night, I woke up and I sat bolt upright and I said, boo-foo? It's not boo-foo, it's foo-boo. And I texted and I emailed and I called them and it had gone through 
all ears and all eyes, and it was about to be aired, and they just pulled it before Bufu, for so many reasons, not correct. It's Jill's Juicy Bites, the place to get communication strategies to grow your business. Here's Jill Schiffelbein. Welcome back, everyone, to another Juicy Bite. This is Jill Schiffelbein, and this month we are going to mix in some social media, some podcast interview media appearances, combine it with some strong organization, and bam, you're going to have a solution for keeping track of all of the things that you're doing so you can leverage the heck out of them. So our awesome VOE chair, Kate Delaney, and I often talk about leverage, and she likes to ask the question, what are you not leveraging? And in fact, I know she asks herself this on a regular basis. Well, I know that me personally and a lot of speakers I know are not leveraging all of the media that they already have at their disposal. And here's what I mean by that. I'm guessing that you have at some point in time given an interview where a quote ended up in an article, or maybe you gave some information that ended up on a blog post. Maybe you appeared in a podcast or maybe on a more traditional media outlet such as radio or television. Almost everyone has something like that at their their disposal. And you know what? Most of us aren't really leveraging them very well. So here's what I do, and here is how you can keep yourself more organized to prepare to leverage these appearances better. I call it simply my media appearances spreadsheet. It's not sexy, but I'm telling you the organization is. So on this spreadsheet, by the way, if you go to bit.ly forward slash Jill's Juicy Bites, you can actually download the same spreadsheet I use. But on this spreadsheet, I type in the date of the show. I put in the headline or the topic of the interview, the media, the podcast, what have you. I put in another column, the media or podcast name. I list the host, the social accounts of the host. I do Twitter. And then I also list the show social if possible. I also then have a column for linking to the segment on the show and then any image that is relevant. So if it was video, getting a screenshot of the video, if there's a logo associated with the show, getting that, whatever it may be. And I keep a running spreadsheet of all of these. So number one, I don't forget all of the things that I've done. And number two, so I can leverage them. Then what I do is I take this spreadsheet and once a month, this is my plan. Some people do it much more frequently, but this is at the bandwidth level I can handle. You decide that for yourself. Once a month, I go into a tool that I use to manage social media. I personally use Hootsuite, but there's Sprout, there's Buffer, there's TweetDeck. There's so many other ones that you can use, but I use Hootsuite and I go in there and I pre-plan out tweets that are linking to the media in my spreadsheet. So maybe it's a year or two years old even, but it's still getting new birth as long as that content is relevant. And trust me, when you're doing that and actually linking to the hosts and the show pages of people where you've appeared in the past, it gets you lots of good social media cred. It makes you front of mind with these people. And who knows, you can even book more podcasts. I know for me, I was on a show a few years ago because of this strategy, tweeted them out. They were more than happy to help me promote my new book when it came out in March. So it's doing little things like this over time that really help. And quite frankly, you've already done the hard work. Why aren't you leveraging it? 
So this spreadsheet will help keep you more organized so you can better leverage all of the things that you are doing. Now, one recommendation for all of you, do this in a cloud-based document. And what I mean by that is something like Google Docs. I use Google Docs, the sheets, to actually create this document because when I feel the need to outsource something or if I want to outsource to a VA saying, hey, for this month, I want five tweets with this, five tweets with XYZ, every single one of these media appearances, whatever it is, I can easily just share this document with that VA and they can come up with that list. I can then approve it and then they schedule them in Hootsuite for me. And that's an incredibly efficient way to manage your social media. And you were able to do that because of your organization in the first place. And well, a selfish flashback, if you missed the March episode of VOE and the Juicy Bite where I talked about repurposing, well, that is just another way to really leverage the heck out of each and every single appearance that you do. So go back and check that out if you haven't already. In summary, if you go to bit.ly forward slash Jill's Juicy Bites, you'll be able to download this media appearances spreadsheet that I use to keep track of everything that I do so I can better share the word. And again, very essential is make sure whoever's interviewing you, putting you on their show, etc., you have their social information so that when you share it, you can tag them because that's how our communities build. This has been Jill Schiffelbein with another Juicy Bite on leveraging technology to grow your business. Let's check in with the National Speakers Association President John Molidor for our monthly conversation. This time around in our conversation with the president of the NSA, Dr. John Molidor, I thought it'd be interesting to look at the spinoff first from what happens in the minds of the people who are excited, who just heard us speak, and they want to book us. Dr. Molitor, what happens when somebody's excited, they come up to us and say, gosh, we really, really would love to have you come into our company, or we'd love to have you come back and do another keynote for us? One of the things that we know that might be happening is that, so let's say you hear somebody and you think they're really fabulous, right? Yeah. And you go, then you go up to them and say, yes, we have to bring you into our company. We want to bring you. Well, what we think is probably happening is that your reward center in your brain is lighting up. And it's like, oh, wow. But like most reward centers over time, <laughs> it dissipates. It goes down. And so probably then you forget about that person because something else has come along that sort of grabs your attention. So you have both so much going on that's grabbing your attention as well as that, wow, I saw that person and they were really great. We need to get them. And then as time goes on, if you don't act on it, you probably forget about it. So what do you do if you're the speaker, the lecturer, the person facilitating, leading the workshop, whatever it might be? Probably a couple of things that you might do would be to follow up. And then you basically, you could send them an email. I'd probably do the email right now rather than call the person to say, you know, thank you so much for your kind words or thank you for your feedback. Afterwards, you mentioned the possibility of me coming in. I'd love to do that. Now, many of us do that, and then we're still forgotten. <laughs> so, so true. <laughs> so, so, and then for many of us, we kind of go, I don't want to bug them. Right. I don't want to be a nuisance, because I think that's the other fear that we have. 
but I think you could probably check back another time, you know, just checking to make sure you got the email. Is there anything else I can do? Can I send you information? And I think it's just trying to make that contact as much as possible. But it's a tricky situation because we get caught between our, you know, yes, obviously we'd love to be brought in. And then I think some of us kind of go, well, but I don't want to be a nuisance and bug them. But I think if you could send them something, send them somewhere to a video, all those things I think would help. So the thing is, don't let your fear paralyze you into not going that extra, extra step. You might take the first step, but once you do that, you do the first follow-up. Don't let your mind trap you into thinking editing for the person, because really we're editing for the person if we perhaps don't reach out that second time. In a lot of ways, we're not only editing, but we're also making the decision for them because we haven't followed up. And so it's like, oh, well, nothing's there. And so I would try to then give them something else. Again, send them to the web page, send them to an article, anything that maybe even that quoted you, send them that, you know, hey, I spoke recently, you know, I was honored to be blah, blah, blah. So it's just a way to maintain that connection because who knows, that person may have been on vacation or something else more important came along in their lives and then they get pulled in that direction. And the amount of emails and stuff that we receive is increasing so much. It's how do you get yourself out of that stack? I like that. How do you get yourself out of that stack? Are you good at this, John? Are you good at follow-up? I'm not the best. (laughs) Part of the thing that I keep working on all the time is the amount of emails, the amount of requests for information or appointments that come through is really massive. So I've started to use an administrative assistant. And then basically for each task, I'm now trying to not prioritize it anymore. I take each task and go, what time am I going to do this? And then I schedule it. And that's started to change my movement. So from, okay, here's my big massive list of all the A tasks that I have to do or, you know, B tasks. Now I'm just going to go, all right, at 9.15, I'm scheduling that task. I'm actually going to do it. And that seems to be having an administrative assistant then plug it in to my schedule as well as then it's on my schedule. And then I just go, all right, you have to do this right now versus, okay, here's my priority task. So specifics, the specific time instead of the master list, I'm sure a lot of people listening have the master list. I know I'm guilty of that. I have a giant bulletin board, John, and it's got this list that's incredible. It almost, you know, my husband says, why don't you also write on this, wake up, tie your shoes and brush your teeth, and then you can check something off. And you know what? This may be part of the deal for a few of the people listening as well. I like to see tasks done, so I like to see check marks or X's, and I agree with you about the master list and assigning the time. I just stopped doing that, and now I'm more effective. I put the list in a drawer, and I don't look at it, and I actually do the time thing, too. So maybe that's another thing in our brain you would know better than I would, that if you put the specific time down, there's a better chance that you'll accomplish that. Absolutely. And there's two other things that will be at play here. The brain loves completion. So they loved being able to complete the task. So that's one. Then two, we're back to the reward center. It's like, wow, I've earned the check mark. Here's the other thing we're starting to discover, that if you have something and you're not moving it forward to put it onto your schedule, there's a sense that if you start the task 
So the research I saw is between three and 20 seconds, you have much greater likelihood of actually doing the task. So if something comes into your brain or you look at something, oh, I have to do this. If you do something within three to 20 seconds of actually seeing the task, you have a much higher probability of completing the task. And it could be literally is I'll take out a piece of paper or I'll pull up a Word document on my laptop and that you just start to do something towards that task, much greater probability of actually completing it. Yeah, interesting. Mel Robbins, who's a speaker, and she had, I don't know how many hits on her TED Talk or YouTube, but she actually spoke in Washington at a previous influence for people who may remember her. And she does this speech about five seconds that your brain, she says, actually this, John, she says your brain screws you over after five seconds. So I like the fact that we have three and 20. That makes sense. Yeah. And and what we're discovering is, is when she refers that the brain screws you over, it's because there's so much sensory input that's coming through your brain that it's so easy for one to get distracted. And then we also know from one of the psychological principles that if you have two tasks and one's harder than the other, you'll do the easier task. And so one of the things is start training yourself to go do the tough task first and then reward yourself with the easier task. Because the other way doesn't work as well. You do the easy task and you say, all right, what's my reward? Now I get to do the hard task. It doesn't work. So do the hard one first. Reward yourself then with the easier one. So there's another principle that we know from psychology that works. So now this year you are more than midway through your presidency. The stack of email, is it getting bigger or smaller? (laughs) Um, It seems to be getting bigger. (laughs) So it's incredibly rewarding because people do send along ideas and thoughts, concerns, and that's great. So you get that feedback. On the downside, sometimes what they send along, I find my little inner voice going, really? And I worry that that sometimes we have so much time that we're diving into some of these issues that are really, really pretty minutiae. They're minutiae in my thinking, but maybe big. I try to remind myself it may be big to them. But yes, a lot of communication, a lot of stuff comes across. There's so many moving parts to our association, and it's so rare to be able to come up with one solution for anything. And so it's always trying to look at it from the different perspectives, different views. That's critical. Once again, we're here with Dave Lieber for One Minute Power Thoughts on Writing and Creativity. This time around, what's your thing? Yeah, call it what's your thing. And I just have the idea that anybody who's a communicator of any kind, who gets on a stage or who writes or who speaks before groups, should have a thing. Now, we're in Dallas right now, and that's what we call it, our thing. And what I mean by that is something that you are known for in your writing and your speaking. That's something, and it's just so basic, but it's amazing how many people don't have a thing. And it might take you a few years to get it. But you'll notice all your favorite writers had a thing. I mean, F. Scott Fitzgerald was elegant, and and, and Hemingway wrote short and, and fast and macho sentences, and, and everybody had a thing, you know. And I know, Kate, you've had a thing for a really long time. I, I do. I, I write the way I talk, and it's just apparent in everything that I do. And I've been told that over and over again. I used to write a, a newspaper column, and they told me to keep doing that. Mm-hmm. 
even if it wasn't 100% correct because it wasn't in Chicago AP style, they would just kind of, you know, brighten it up and it worked for me. And I, and I think you're right. You have to find out what your thing is. I yeah. love that. And, and, you, and you can't ignore it because in today's world, you have to differentiate yourself. And the way you do it is by being something bigger than you, yourself, in a sense, you know, high impact. Yep. Make sure you find that. That's a great tip. Dave Lieber, one minute power thoughts on writing and creativity. We'll do it again next month. Thanks. We're here with Stu Schlackman, CSP, president of the North Texas chapter twice, do you believe it? And he is the king of teaching you why it's important to know the personalities of the people you're speaking to and the people who hire you, let's face it. So, Stu, why do we care about personalities, really? I have my personality, you have yours, so what? If you like me, isn't that good enough? If you think you're interested in me, isn't that good enough? Well, it's good enough if, if it's me and you because we're the same. But you think about it. When you meet someone for the first time, you're coming to them from your perspective. I mean, our eyes, the way we look at life through our eyes, is our default system. So we measure everything against the way we are. So if I come up against someone that's not like me, I'm just going to continue in my mode of operation, and they're not getting it. In fact, they don't even like it. So I need to take into account the first question I I should always ask myself is, who am I with? What is the personality style of the person I'm with? Are they gold, green, blue, or orange? And I happen to be an orange. So I have to be very careful and really think to myself, who am I talking to? Because I have to adjust to them if we want to connect and if we want to influence. And how powerful is it then to adjust? Because you say that affects influence. So if you don't adjust, you lose jobs? You, yeah, absolutely. Unless they were told to hire you <laughs> for that speaking gig. But really, we have to adjust to them so that we have this connection. And that we see the thing is we have to learn how to understand how the four personality styles prefer to communicate, how they make decisions, slow or fast with their heart, their head, or their gut, what they value. Do they value detail or do they value excitement and the big picture? You know, and then what motivates them to action? So if I understand that, let's let's say you're a green personality, Kate, okay, okay? which is so different from me. These people are inquisitive, they're curious, they're skeptics, and they ask a lot of questions. As an orange, I don't ask a lot of questions. I'm not detailed. I'm big picture. I'm persuasive. I'm outgoing. I'm extroverted. Most greens are introverted. So if I come to them as an extrovert, loud, rambunctious, big picture with no details, I'll lose them right away. What made you decide to go into this and make this one of your obviously yeah. biggest tool probably in your arsenal? How, how did that happen for you? It was an accident. I think like with all of us, it it turned, I mean, really, it was an accident. This was about 12 years ago. A friend told me, hey, I want you to take this quick test. And it's really quick. It's a 10-question survey. And so I took it, and he said, so you're an orange personality. I said, so what does that mean? Well, it means I'm lively, persuasive, outgoing, like to be the center of attention. I'm animated. And I said, so what? And he said, so how can you use this? You're a sales guy. And then the light bulb went on. It's like, well, I could use this in a sales model. How would I sell to the four different personality styles? And once we understand who they are, 
it makes it much easier and the success rate goes up, your win rate goes up, and you shorten the sales cycle. And so that's how it happened. So you could also say the personality assessments are powerful because assessments in the world of speaking and training are huge. And now we see some assessments are online. Some are still done during the course of maybe a training that you have with a corporation. And what reaction do you find when you use the assessments with the people you work with? Actually, they're, they're pretty amazed because it's only 10 questions. Where if, if you take Myers-Briggs or DISC, you're getting into a 45-minute to a one-hour assessment. And you think about it. If I ask my audiences, how many of you have taken Myers-Briggs? And a lot of hands will go up. So does anybody remember their four letters? Maybe one hand will go up. I say, so what are you? Oh, I'm a ENTJ. Oh, so you're an extroverted, intuitive-thinking judger. Okay, how do you sell to that type of person? There's no way you could figure it out. But it's very easy to relate a name to a color and the characteristics of a color. So I know that Kate's orange and I know exactly the characteristics of the orange so I know how to connect with Kate. You can't do that with Myers-Briggs and I also found it fairly difficult to do it with DISC also because what are the characteristics of a, a person that's steady or competent? It's not as easy to remember as that of a color green, gold, blue, or orange. Do you think it'll be harder in the world that we live in now because uh, more than ever people have their faces in their phones, they're not socializing as much even if they're social people? So will things change a little bit as far as personalities and assessments, maybe be tweaked a little bit? You know, that is one of the best questions anybody could ever ask because Daniel Pink, his first book was A Whole New Mind. And in the book, he says that more of the population is going to the right brain people. Right brain people are blue and orange. They're more relational. They're more into people than the golden greens that are more into work, task, and details. And the reason why the world's going that way is because of social media, because of the internet, and because of interaction. So that's something that Daniel Pink brought out, because you think about the difference between left brain and right brain people. Left brain people want to know what is said. Right brain people want to know how it's said. So left brain people focus on the verbal, right brain people on the nonverbal. You know, left brain people are detailed, right brain people are big picture. And so there's a big difference, but he's actually saying that more people, especially the millennials are acting more right brain, that's the blue and orange, more sociable, more interactive. And I think that social media has has brought on a lot of that. Thanks, Stu. Very excited to be joined here on VOE this time around by Marquesa Petway. She's a business reinvention expert. I just call her the queen. I hope that's okay. Speaker and coach, of course. She's a former CNN business news producer. She helps create virtual business models and signature systems for speakerpreneurs. I love that word. In fact, she trademarked it. She created it, I guess, about a decade ago. She also has a column, as we all know, in Speaker Magazine, Speaker's Toolkit. Marquesa, thanks so much for uh, joining us. Thank you, Kate. Thanks for having me. So you've been in the business 12 years and 70% of your business and sometimes more is virtual. 
this is a great direction to go in. What does that look like? Well, I have to tell you this. I left corporate America in 2005 without a clue of what life would be like as a professional speaker. I just knew I wanted to do it. So after being on the road for a little less than five years with three seminar companies, you guys know what I'm talking about, AMA, National Seminar, Skill Path, I ate, slept, and drank on the road. Okay, this was my life. I barely had time to come home. I live in New York City and change clothes and forget a social life. And although I love the speaking and the connecting, I was lonely, miserable. And I said, I got to get out of this. I got to get out of this. And I realized one of my true values was freedom. I need to make money without the need of getting on a plane every single time. I want to diversify my income. And then one of the seminar companies shifted and I had to replace that income. So, so many lessons, Kate, came from that experience. And while I was on the road, I made these decisions and I was still speaking. And one of the first things I did was to learn, and this is really when Facebook got popular, uh, because remember, I got downsized, I think, in 2005. So I was on the road through about 2009, 2010, somewhere in there. I mean, that's really when social media became popular. But I had to learn how to use it as a person promoting themselves, putting themselves out there. So I work with coaches, and I really learned about the online world. And that's really where it came from. Yeah, so saying that, that you were on all these planes, you were exhausted, you were eating, doing everything on the road, and like you said, Marquess, and many people can relate to that. Now, what does a typical day look like? Uh, it's great. I get to do what I love on my own terms. And what's so cool about that question, there's really no typical day. It gets to shift a little bit because we all know as a professional speaker, you can go and work for a corporation and have a normal life. Nothing against that. But once I got that entrepreneurial buzz, I said, you know what? I want to figure out a way where I can work with entrepreneurs often, talk about the things I love to talk about, but still use speaking as the core. So on one day, one weekend, I could have an event here in New York City, you know, at a fancy spot here in New York City for two or three days. And maybe I'll bring in speakers like you to help me out. Another time I will pop into what we're using right now, some kind of virtual webinar platform where we can see each other and I'll talk to my members. I have my own academy that I, I've had for years. And I'll pop in and do that. I also have my own virtual portal where my members can log in at any time. So maybe I'll check that out and add something or remove something or have my team do some more of the administrative stuff. I also get a chance, I get interviewed often for different radio shows, sometimes TV shows. I'm in the middle of launching some things I can't talk about, but they are taking me on higher media platforms. I get to do stuff I love and make money doing it. So there is no typical day, but the beautiful thing is I can still fly off and spend a full day with one client. I call those VIP days. I can fly off and speak at a company for half a day. So I get to do whatever I want, whenever I want, and still have a life. And that's important to me. My, basically, I have created a lifestyle business. Oh, which is great, which is such, it's such a big secret, but hopefully it's a secret a lot of people are learning now as we see people try to adopt that. And, and the big question is then, why did you choose this business model? Well, it's so funny. Part of me feels like it chose me. When you first get into this business, 
you know, everybody wants to be, you want to be the keynoter and you're thinking, I just want to be on a plane, perfectly first class. And I want to have an entourage. Maybe that's just me (laughs) (laughs) to a company, treat it like, you know, Oprah and, and do my thing. And they love me and I love them and they make me happy. And I get back on the plane. That sounds great. But after a while that, cause I did do it for a while, guys, after a while, it wasn't enough. And, and I felt limited. And if I didn't have certain dates on my calendar, I felt like, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? I remember one of my speaker buddies, Kate, saying, you go from hero to zero, <laughs> hero Ooh. to zero, because you feel good that you got all these gigs lined up. But what if a gig doesn't go through? What if one month you're not covered? Do you think the electric company or your landlord cares about that kind of stuff? No, mm-hmm. no. So you've got to work smarter. I decided I spent the first five years in this industry working hard, you know, because I didn't know anything else. As time went on, I learned how to work smart. So I still get to do the keynotes. I still get to do all the things I love, but a different way. So I think in a way it just sort of evolved over time. And then you start to figure out what is it that I want you know, once you get to know the business, what piece of it do I want? And you create your own identity. Yeah. And, and it's interesting. You, you gave us some of those, but what, what would you say are some of the other pros? Well, some of the other pros is I love technology. I really do. I love that I can still be face to face, but I don't have to leave my apartment to do it. You know, I love that I can have an event in my own backyard. People fly to me or a lot of my local clients are here. I love that when I do want to get on a plane and fly somewhere that I can. So freedom, uh, being able to, and then two, I'm much happier, which means my clients are happier. Uh, I love that I can sit up here and record something and then put it in my members portal or send it to my list for free. Um, I can get on Periscope and talk about something. And then because I have a funnel set up, folks will come and check me out, go through that funnel and talk to me and become a client. All because I got on Periscope for five minutes. Wow. That's all good stuff. What would be the cons? Now, the cons, it really depends on the person. If you're not strong with technology, there can be a problem. Also, one of the things I had to learn, Kate, was you need a team. You need a team if you want your business to be scalable. And what I mean by that is, how can I do one thing but one to many? You know, the, a lot of private coaching is not something I want to do because that takes a ton of energy. So. Sure. For my private clients, there's a higher dollar on that. But for my group clients, then I'm able to meet with them. So when I work with, like, I just literally got a call for my unique title for what I do under the business reinvention bubble. And I was asked, hey, can you come in and just speak for two hours? I said, sure. I turned that one gig, Kate, into a six-month deal. So I quadrupled my fee and I'm going to spend probably about 75, 70% of my time with this client virtual. You get So now I'm working with, I think about 20 of their employees. Um, I'm breaking them into groups based on some parameters. And then I get to meet with them through a virtual webinar platform. There's a special portal that I set up just for them so they can log in, download if they miss it, checklist, whatever. Um, So if you're going to do these pieces, you need a team. You need people to help you do it. If you try to do everything, a site's going to go down. Technology is going to act crazy. Facebook may not work when you need it to. You need a team. You also need to be comfortable with online marketing. 
Um, you need to be consistent with building that list. You need to be consistent with having a presence online. I- I'm just shocked when people say Facebook is a, a waste of time or, you know, all of social media is a waste of time. I assume that it's just not a part of their business model, but there's right. opportunity there. You wouldn't believe it. So it's not going to work well if technology is not your thing. And if you just really want to work alone and you just want to do it all, this, it may not work as well for you. Yeah. I, along those same lines, what are some other things speakers should consider if they really decide they want to do this business model? If they thinking about doing this business model, I would say, think about what are my priorities? What is it that I need to do in order to make this work for me? Really get clear on what you're selling. I've said this before, actually, on a previous VOE. What are you selling and who are you selling it to? Please get an email list. An email list is everything. And I know email lists seem to be getting less popular, but it's still a very big part of how you position yourself as an expert and you get all that money coming in virtually. I love Google. If Google was a person, I would kiss them. <laughs> I do a lot of business when people set up sessions or decide to work with me, a lot of it comes through Google. A lot of it comes through relationships via social media platforms. Some folks have been on my email list for years, Kate. And wow. now I say, can you come and speak here? I want to coach with you here. Or can I do, can I buy this from you here? Um, so think about um, automation, you know, really being able to leverage tools, technology, resources. If you can't do it, somebody else can. You don't have to know how to do all this stuff. So think about how can I find a team, get an OBM, an online business manager. I have one. They are amazing and they know all these tools. And if you are like me, you don't like to manage people, they can manage people for you. Um, Also, list building is a consistent thing that you must do. And then diversify your income. Get comfortable with making your money in different ways, all under your expertise umbrella. So my topic, I can train on it. I can do a virtual webinar on it. I can do a downloadable thing that I can sell on it. I can uh, do maybe a Facebook Live and drive traffic on it. I can do my own live events. Diversifying your income feels so amazing. You have no idea. Wow, that's terrific information. I mean, you you just pretty much told us the whole kit and caboodle and even how to set up funnels. I mean, that's great is to use those different areas. I mean, just amazing. How long, here's, here's the last question. How long did it take you to feel comfortable that, wow, I've, I've nailed this, I've got this, and I'm constantly working on this and I'm reinventing? How did you know this is great? It's so funny because... I think you're always, at least for me, I'm always thinking, how can I make this better? To me, it's never perfected. I'm always thinking, how can I work smarter? How can I do this? Is this a great use of my time or can I hire somebody else to do this? Also, I'm always challenging myself to go to that next level, if that makes sense. You know, mm-hmm. I see myself on a major platform and I'm actually in the middle of making some things happen around that now. So, it's hard to predict it, but I'm, you know, I'm driven <laughs> and I have, maybe there's a reason I live in this crazy city of New York and I moved out here to be in television news, which you're familiar with, Kate. That's what we yeah. have. And then I wind up hating it. And little did I know that this would be what I would do. So I don't know. It, it's my life and I love it. And who knew that this would be such a lifestyle business. So I love that I can help other people figure that out for them as well. 
Yeah, good, good stuff. Thanks so much, Marquesa Petway. We appreciate it. Thank you, Kate, and you're awesome. I love your VOE. Time to take it out of the park on Voices of Experience. Very excited to uh, have a chance to talk to Lon Sefko. It's just amazing. Innovator, inventor, best-selling author. Think about this. 2017 Pulitzer Prize nominee, author of multiple. I said that, you know, the author thing, innovative, best-selling books. I've read them, the social media Bible. I can't get enough of his stuff, and I'm thrilled he agreed to spend some time with us. And I thought we'd talk about Big Brain, because he certainly has one. Lon, thanks for jumping on. We appreciate it. Oh, how exciting it is to be here. Thank you for thinking of me. I think the place to start, because there's a lot of roads that we could go down, but I want to talk about the fact that you developed the world's first voice recognition, voice synthesizing, pioneering home automation. I mean, this is brain, big brain stuff. So tell me about that. And how did you know you had really hit on to something spectacular as a person who is, you know, innovative and is an inventor? Well, I knew I was onto something when it saved somebody's life. So I'm credited with the first computer to save a human life. Steve Jobs coined that phrase, and I thought it was pretty cool, so it kind of stuck with me. I did it really for fun back in the 70s, way back in the 70s when computers first came out. They'd only been out for a couple of years. And I was playing with it, and I said, wouldn't it be cool if I could teach a computer to listen to me? And I did. And then I said, wow, how cool would it be if I can get it to talk to me? And then I did. And then I said, can I get it to turn on lights and appliances? So then I said, lamp on. Lamp would come on. Lock door. Television on. Radio off. Call mom. And that was back in uh, the early, early 80s. And I worked with disabled people, and it started saving their lives, and they built a company around it. Well, and that company took off like a shot. And, you know, when people think of voice recognition, who do we think of? There's a lot of people. You mentioned Steve Jobs, obviously. And, uh, you know, the, the, you look at the archetypes for the Apple Newton and the first PDA. And, you know, a, as you said, um, you know, ultimately saving a life. But I think of Stephen Hawking, right? Well, I actually went over to meet Stephen Hawking to help him with his disability over in Cambridge, and we didn't connect. He was called out of Cambridge at the very last minute. But my last customer that I got to work with was Christopher Reeve, Superman. Oh, and we saw him in interviews. He wanted so desperately to be able to still reach people, and you obviously gave him the ability to do that. What was that like with the light bulb moment? You could see it in his eyes, right, when he was able to do that? You know, that's the exciting thing is to see people who have completely lost hope and wanted to die. A lot of disabled people that I worked with would have committed suicide if they could have moved their arms. But then after working with a system where they can, I had a woman without arms typing 48 words a minute. And when you see that, it's just so rewarding. So when you do something, you know you're helping humans. You're making that connection through the computer and what you were able to do, how that innovation that you created. Where do you go from there? Because you have lots of inventions. In fact, 18 of your inventions are part of the permanent collection of the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C. They even have 30,000 of your personal papers. So they were enthralled enough, and we've seen them. I can't tell you how many times I've been to the Smithsonian and as you know they're all housed in different buildings and broken down but what is it you just are motivated you keep going for all the people that are listening that want to kind of grasp on grab on to innovation how do you do that 
Well, Thomas Edison once said that inspiration is 10% and perspiration is 90%. And I get inspired all of the time. I look around and see things and know how to make them better. I mean, I just get these ideas of how to put things together. And some ideas are, to be honest with you, pretty stupid. But some of them, I think, have merit. So I'll go out and I'll build it or make it or design it or write it. And then I'll test it and see what people think. And if they like it, eh, I'll build a company around. It and next thing you know, it's kind of out there and it's successful. Yeah. Where do you think we are with technology? Are we at the cutting edge of technology? Is it going to take off even more? Where are we? Yeah, I have to say it's always going to take off. I thought in 1978 when the Apple first came out and the Commodore was out there and the Osborne for your older audience, I thought we were on the cutting edge of technology. It was amazing what we were doing with computers. And that was 40 years ago. And look at what we're doing now. The most powerful computer in 1978 is probably represents about 3 or 4% of the smartphone that we have in our pocket. So it's going to continue. And it's going to continue at a faster and faster faster rate. And that's going to make it difficult for us to kind of keep up with. Artificial intelligence is going to become a major part of our life. And I'm proud to say that I was one of the pioneers in voice recognition and voice synthesizing. Of course, we have Siri and Alexa and all the other uh, <laughs> the girl in our box in the car that gives us directions. So that technology is here and it's just going to get more and more sophisticated. So, in other words, you better jump on, right? Especially we've got a lot of speakers and trainers listening to us. And I don't think you can afford, and you could address this better than me, to say, I I just don't do that. I just, I don't do that. I have just handouts and I can't work with technology. And I hear that all the time. I mean, it was really funny. My wife just absolutely refused to get a smartphone. And she only got her first iPhone when they stopped manufacturing flip phones. So it's inevitable. It's here. And people fought computers. They fought email. They fought the Internet. They fought social media. And if you're going to be in business, if you're going to communicate with other human beings, you have to embrace this technology. It's here, and it's here to stay. So learn it. It's not that bad. People are just afraid because it's something new. But once you turn the light on, all the monsters disappear out of the closet. It's actually easy and it's fun. I like that. It's easy and it's fun. One of the things that you also do besides make these incredible inventions (laughs) and set the world on fire with innovation in your spare time when you're speaking, you know, you're a renowned international speaker. There's no question about that. You teach some of the world's biggest companies, household names that we know, how to harness innovative thinking. What are some of the key elements of what you have discovered really work for you when you're trying to make that breakthrough moment for these companies? I love teaching innovative thinking. It's what I used to teach before I wrote the social media Bible. So it's kind of my foundation. I was asked by a speaker's bureau in 2001. He said, you're the most innovative person I've ever met. Can you make a keynote or even a whole day training? And I answered, well, yeah, of course. I do innovation all the time. Three years later, I still hadn't figured it out. They needed a process, and they actually turned it into a process. It's something I call the three C's. The secret to innovation is to study everything around you if you're trying to solve a problem. Look at it from every different angle, every industry. Don't just look at your own industry. If there was a solution, 
someone would have already figured it out. Henry Ford discovered how to create an assembly line. It changed manufacturing forever. And it gave us the opportunity to make less expensive products like the car. But he learned it one afternoon, sitting under a tree on a potato farm. He was watching the potatoes go up the conveyor belt and drop into the truck. And he said, wait a minute, if I can change out the potatoes for cars, I got something here. And he reduced the price of the car to about 500 bucks, and he was making millions of them. So sometimes the solutions are right in front of you. And then give your brain an opportunity to communicate those solutions. Turn off the background noise. You don't have to get in the car and blast your iPhone. Just listen to your own brain, because it's amazing how many good ideas you have in there. You hear them in the shower. You hear them when you are exercising, when you're walking or jogging. You get them at night when you're sleeping. So just listen to yourself. We started talking about technology, but ironically, turn off the technology to, <laughs> to let your brain just kind of marinate with those ideas. I love that, Lon. <laughs> true. <laughs> so true. So, so as you said, you also have one of the books I mentioned, the Social Media Bible. And I think there's a lot of confusion over social media. I mean, I, I'll admit this. People will say you have to do everything. You've got to get a zillion people on Instagram. And then, oh, my gosh, what are your numbers on Twitter? For goodness sake. Look at the President Trump and how many numbers he has on Twitter. And what about Facebook? And I think we become overwhelmed by social media. How do we tame that lion? That's a big problem for everybody. I mean, not only personally, how do you keep in touch with everybody on every platform? Even for you, getting to your listeners and finding where they are. Every company worldwide, which is why I teach uh, digital communications worldwide, because everyone is faced with the same problem. First of all, there's too much content. There's too much information coming at us from every single angle. So we're getting desensitized to marketing, to advertising, to tweets, to posts. Everybody's talking. Nobody's listening. That's the first problem. But what you said was absolutely true. We do kind of have a responsibility, especially if we're in business, to monitor and to communicate on every single platform. The reason is we don't know where the critical mass is. We don't know if your listeners prefer Facebook over Twitter or they like LinkedIn or Instagram. So you got to kind of be there. you got to test it. you got to see where they are. And then after you test it and get some numbers, you can kind of cut back on some of the platforms that aren't giving you the best rate of return on investment and focus on the ones where the majority of your customers are. Yeah, great advice. Parting shot. So as we talk about technology, letting your brain have a chance to think creatively, to come up with whatever the next great best speech is or product or whatever it is that you might be doing, what would you like to see happen in the near future when it comes to innovation? Oh, I want everybody to become more innovative. I want everybody to believe that they are innovators. Everybody comes up with great ideas. Think of the number of great ideas that you've come up with in your lifetime. And if you could just figure out what that process is, like riding a bike, playing a piano, and you just practiced it just a little bit, and you were able to come up with really award-winning ideas once a month, once a week, maybe even once a day, how would that change your life? How would that change the world? America, I mean, that's what made this the greatest country in the world for centuries, because we are innovators. We are constantly pushing the boundaries, breaking through that envelope. And I want everybody to continue to do that. Just be as innovative as possible, because we all have it in us. We just have to know how to do it, and we get to practice. Lon Sefko, thanks so much for coming on. We appreciate it. 
Always a pleasure. Thank you. Here's Kate Delaney with If You Want to Get Heard. Just recently, I was asked to be part of a discussion on what I wished I knew five years ago that I know now. Honestly, it would be the power of spinoffs, something NSA member Teresa Rose says she missed the first time around as well. The number one mistake that I made was, I know this is from the duh category, but don't deliver a program that nobody wants. You know, I mean, it, it. sometimes we get so wrapped up in what we want to deliver. Uh, and, you know, we might be funny and we might be good at what we do and have a great story and all that stuff. Interesting and talented. And, you know, some of the people uh, who are listening might know who I am. I was on uh, uh, So You Think You Can Speak and I was a hoop dancer, hula hooper. So I, you know, did my keynotes with a hula hoop. And in, while it was great and fun, but if it doesn't add value, if it doesn't fundamentally uh, address their frustrations, then you're not going to get rebooked. So the first most important thing is if you're not getting rebooked or not only getting rebooked, but getting spinoffs from the audience, then you really need to take a close, unadulterated, unfiltered look at your program and what you're delivering and the value you're providing. And if you're not getting spinoffs from every single event, then you really got to look in the mirror and say, how's my topic and how is it relevant to the people in the audience? Is it adding value? Yep. Excellent. How about uh, the forms that we hand out? Because I know some people have elaborate ones and sometimes it's hard to to read them, frankly. Well, and it's hard to read them. They're not reading them. That's the answer. They're not reading them. I used to have a form that had, you know, yes, I'd like to be added to Teresa's newsletter. And yes, I'd be interested in her coaching. And yes, I know of an organization that might benefit from having Teresa speak. It had the organization name and the phone number. And I'd get all these, you know, opt-in forms with all these organization numbers and names. And I was going, oh my gosh, this is fantastic. Until I called these people and realized, no, it was just, uh, they weren't reading the form. You know, they're done with the, the your presentation and they fill out whatever you put in front of them and they may not even be reading it. So if you're going to use an opt-in form, make sure that you, I recommend that you even have something separate that only is about spinoff. Don't complicate it. Don't confuse it because they're not reading it and it's just going to waste your precious time. Speaking of time, well, we've tried about six or seven times, but wow, we finally have President-elect Brian Walter here with us in the VOE studio. Woo, is right. After all those fire alarms and locked doors, I was starting to get paranoid. No, just weird coincidences, but let's jump right to it. Tell us your top three guaranteed speaking success tips. You got it, Kate. Number one is, what's that? What's that? Yes, what's that? What's that? The tip? No, what's that is in really, what's that? Oh, that's Shaq, my service cat. He's a calming influence. Why do you need a service cat? Actually, I use him to help irate guests. His purr calms them down. Go ahead and pet him. Ooh, I see what you mean. He's so fluffy. I feel like I'll tell you anything you want to know now. Exactly. So back to the three guaranteed success tips. Right. So num- number one is, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I'm allergic to cats. Does this is? Oh, sorry. Do you, do you have a do you have a Kleenex? Uh, sure. Let me grab. Sorry, I think I, I think I got a little bit on your sleeve there. That's not a problem. Yeah. <laughs> it looks like we're out of time, and Brian's well not at his best. I guess we'll just try again next month. Sorry. See you next time on Voices of Experience. Kate, do you have an EpiPen? <laughs>
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.